Hi, welcome to my podcast, where today I'll talk about Abraham Lincoln versus Robert E. Lee. My name is Tim Harner. I'm a Christian author and apologist, a graduate of Houghton College and of Harvard Law School, where I was an editor of the Harvard Law Review. As an attorney, my primary role has been as a general counsel. Therefore, I call the six books that I've written the General Counsel Series. The first four books of the series outline the Bible from Genesis to Revelation, providing scriptural backing for the final installments of the series that outline the history of America and the history of the Church Universal. I post my latest thoughts regularly on my website, timharner.com. And now, as I talk about Abraham Lincoln versus Robert E. Lee, let's pray that the Lord will let the words of my mouth and the meditations of our hearts be acceptable in the sight of the Lord our God, who is our strength and our Redeemer. It took two more years of bloody fighting before Robert E. Lee realized that liberty and union truly were one and inseparable then and forevermore. This officer and gentleman embodied all that was best about the Old South. Robert E. Lee deplored slavery. He loved the Union, but Robert E. Lee loved his homeland, Virginia, even more, so he came to Virginia's defense when duty called. Virginia shared the conviction of the South that it had the same right to leave the Union as the original colonies had had to leave the British Empire. Indeed, the South felt that the best, the ultimate safeguard of liberty was the right of a state to leave the Union if tyranny by the federal government threatened the unalienable rights of people to life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. This belief was plausible, but misguided. As James Madison explained in The Federalist No. 10 in 1787, during the debate whether to ratify the United States Constitution, people's rights and liberties are far more secure in a large republic than in a small republic. This brilliant insight of political science rested on Madison's realization that it is far easier to establish a tyranny by a majority if only a small, homogeneous group needs to act in unison. As Madison explained, the smaller the society, the fewer probably will be the distinct parties and interests composing it. And the smaller the compass within which they are placed, the more easily will they concert and execute their plans of oppression. Extend the sphere, and you make it less probable that a majority of the whole will have a common motive to invade the rights of other citizens or be able to act in unison with each other. One example of Madison's insight was the establishment of freedom of religion in the United States. In colonial times, individual colonies had different established religions. For example, Congregationalists were strong in Massachusetts, and Episcopalians were strong in Virginia. When these diverse states joined the same union, it was impossible to establish a single religion for the entire United States. Another example of Madison's insight was the ending of legalized segregation in the South during the 1950s and 1960s. Because African Americans could appeal to the consciences of whites outside of the South, 
they were able to overcome the localized tyranny of whites within the South. A vestige of this wisdom of that great Virginian, James Madison, remained in the Virginia of 1861. Therefore, unlike South Carolina and the other states in the Deep South, Virginia and the other states in the Upper South did not leave the Union merely because Abraham Lincoln was elected president. Instead, Virginia and these other southern states waited to see if Lincoln would actually resort to tyranny against the South. When Lincoln tried to coerce the Confederate states back into the Union after Fort Sumter fell, these southern states decided that they must fight to preserve this fundamental safeguard of their liberties, the right to leave the Union in order to thwart tyranny. Robert E. Lee gave his first loyalty to his home state, Virginia, instead of to the Union, much as people today give their first loyalty to the United States of America instead of to the United Nations. Therefore, when Virginia decided to leave the Union, Robert E. Lee resigned his commission in the United States Army and volunteered to defend his homeland, Virginia, by becoming a general in the Confederate Army. We have already seen how brilliantly Robert E. Lee drove the Yankees from the gates of Richmond, but he was admired for far more than his military skills. In his wisdom, in his integrity, and in his determination to defend the liberties of his homeland, Robert E. Lee was the equal of George Washington himself. Robert E. Lee's failure to become the father of a new nation is primarily due to the fact that instead of fighting the foolish, corrupt, and tyrannical King George III, Lee fought someone whose wisdom, integrity, and determination to defend the liberties of his homeland were unsurpassed by Lee or by Washington, Abraham Lincoln. With Lincoln's Emancipation Proclamation, the best hope of Confederate independence, intervention from Britain, was lost. Now, all depended on Lee winning independence on the field of battle, either by annihilating the Union Army that was defending Washington, or by holding out until war weariness in the North made them quit. Lincoln looked for a general to beat Lee. In General Burnside, he hoped he'd found the answer, but he was mistaken. Like a loyal dog, Burnside followed Lincoln's order to attack Lee too narrow-mindedly. He marched straight toward Richmond and ran into a buzzsaw at Fredericksburg. Even though the Confederates were fortified on high ground, Burnside foolishly sent his army charging uphill. The well-entrenched Confederates slaughtered the brave Union troops. After this bloody defeat, Burnside sent his army back to their barracks until spring. The situation was so bad that some people feared, and other people hoped, that Lincoln would change his mind about freeing the slaves. This possibility existed because the Emancipation Proclamation that Lincoln issued on September 22, 1862, was merely a preliminary Emancipation Proclamation. It took the form of a warning to the rebels that, unless they surrendered by January 1, 1863, Lincoln would free their slaves on that date. This two-step approach made sense, considering the legal basis on which Lincoln relied to free the slaves. Normally, the president would not have the power to take away property from a United States citizen, not even a toothpick, 
without fair compensation after due process is guaranteed by the Fifth Amendment to the Constitution. But during a war, the president has the power, as commander-in-chief of the military, to do many things that he could not do in peacetime in order to win the war. One special wartime authority afforded to the president is the power to take property away from the enemy so that the enemy's war effort is weakened. Usually, this might mean confiscating their horses so that their cavalry would have no horses. But this time, the president said that he would take away their slaves, arguing that he had the power to take this immense step as one of his war powers as commander-in-chief. To show that he was taking this extraordinary step solely as a wartime measure, Lincoln gave the South a few months to make peace before his proclamation took effect. Then, according to the Preliminary Emancipation Proclamation, Lincoln would issue a final Emancipation Proclamation on January 1, 1863, freeing the slaves of anyone who remained in rebellion on that date. The South did not make peace. Instead, the Republicans suffered major losses in that fall's elections, due in part to people's anger that Lincoln was converting a war to save the Union into a war to free the slaves. Staunch abolitionists were also disillusioned with Lincoln. They complained that Lincoln was only going to free the slaves in areas where his action would not take effect because Confederate forces remained in control. Lincoln could not, or at least did not, use his special wartime powers to free slaves in states that had remained loyal to the Union, such as Kentucky and Maryland, or in areas of the South, such as New Orleans, where Union troops were in control. Indeed, during the period between issuing the Preliminary Emancipation Proclamation and making it final, Lincoln's leadership was more seriously threatened than at any other time, and it was not clear that his administration could survive the repeated crises that it faced. How did Lincoln find the strength and courage to go on? His vision of America strengthened him, and his faith in America encouraged him. In his annual message to Congress on December 1, 1862, Lincoln wrote, In times like the present, men should utter nothing for which they would not willingly be responsible through time and eternity. Lincoln knew that the dogmas of the quiet past are inadequate to the stormy present. Although the occasion is piled high with difficulty, we must rise with the occasion. We must think anew and act anew. Lincoln exhorted, fellow citizens, we cannot escape history. The fiery trial through which we pass will light us down in honor or dishonor to the last generation. Lincoln prophesied, in giving freedom to the slave, we assure freedom to the free, honorable alike in what we give and what we preserve. Lincoln warned, we shall nobly save or meanly lose the last best hope of earth. But so long as Robert E. Lee fought on so gallantly, the last best hope of earth, the last best hope of humanity, was in danger of being snuffed out forever. Indeed, Merely two weeks after these inspirational words from Lincoln came the depressing news of the bloody, bungled defeat at Fredericksburg. 
further weakening the president's supporters and strengthening his detractors. Small wonder that African Americans feared Lincoln would not carry through on his promise to free the slaves. To most liberals and militant black leaders, the president was something of an enigma. A good man, to be sure, honest, decent, and kind, but slow, timid, vacillating even in his approach to the supreme moral issue of the age. As the moment of truth approached, many people said Lincoln would never go through with it. Therefore, Frederick Douglass and other Friends of Liberty waited nervously at a gathering in Boston on New Year's Day, longing for the good news from Washington that Lincoln had freed the slaves. Hours dragged by. Still no telegram arrived. Unbeknownst to the fretting crowd in Boston, the signing ceremony for the Emancipation Proclamation had been delayed because Lincoln was tied up at a New Year's ball. But at last, at 10 p.m., the crowd in Boston learned that a telegram had come from Washington. It was finished. The slaves were free. Suddenly, everyone standing with Frederick Douglass was shouting, laughing, weeping. And far away on islands off South Carolina that Union troops were occupying, blacks and whites celebrated in a grove of giant oaks. When the Union commander unfolded a new flag, an old dry voice came from the audience. The old man carried it by himself for a little while. Then two women joined in and another man and another until the words swelled out, My country tis of thee, sweet land of liberty. Of thee I sing. The Union commander said later, I never saw anything so electric. It made all other words cheap. It seemed the choked voice of a race at last unloosed. To make this promise of liberty come true, however, Lincoln must still defeat Robert E. Lee, a formidable task that was bungled once again in the spring of 1863. This time the bunglerer was General Joe Hooker, nicknamed Fightin' Joe. Cocky and bold, he boasted that he led the finest army on the planet. This boast may even have been true. The army that he led was twice the size of Robert E. Lee's army. Nevertheless, Lee quickly outflanked Hooker's army at the Battle of Chancellorsville. The Yankees fled north, happy that they hadn't been annihilated. Then, Lee made his boldest gamble of the war. He knew that the South was weakening beneath the hammer blows of the larger, economically stronger Union. He must win now, or watch the slow collapse of the South beneath the awesome resources of the Union. And so, Lee marched north, seeking to win an overwhelming victory in a battle on northern soil that he hoped would force the North to give up. Lee's advancing army collided with the Union army at Gettysburg. For three desperate days, the future of America hung in the balance as Lee tried to overcome the immense odds against him. On the eve of battle, Lincoln replaced Hooker with General Meade, who, in this crisis, led essentially by chairing a committee of the Army's generals. They did nothing except order their troops to hold on, but at least they did no harm a far better result than the constant blundering of McClellan, Burnside, and Hooker. This time, it was Robert E. Lee who blundered. 
as Winston Churchill later wrote, Lee believed that his own army was invincible, and he had begun to regard the Union Army almost with contempt. He failed to distinguish between bad troops and good troops badly led. Deceived by his pride in his army and in himself, Lee marched to defeat at Gettysburg. After two days of bloody fighting, Lee had not overcome the Union Army. He should have retreated, but like a quarterback who makes a desperate pass late in a key game and gets intercepted, Lee made a last desperate attack to try to win the battle and the war. We remember this last desperate bid for victory as Pickett's Charge. Pickett's Charge is synonymous with bravery and futility. 15,000 of Robert E. Lee's best troops waved their flags, yelled their defiance, and marched gallantly into a blizzard of metal spewing forth from rows of Yankee cannons defending the high ground at Cemetery Ridge. As Churchill described it, in splendid array, all their battle flags flying, the forlorn assault marched on. But they faced odds and metal beyond the virtue of mortals. Less than a third came back. But the greatest Union victory at Gettysburg was not won with guns. The greatest Union victory at Gettysburg was won with words. The immortal words of Abraham Lincoln in the Gettysburg Address. Four months after the battle, Lincoln spoke at Gettysburg during a ceremony held to dedicate a cemetery to the slain soldiers. Lincoln wasn't the main speaker. Nevertheless, he spoke words that have captured the imagination of Americans and humanity ever since. Lincoln reminded people that America was a new nation conceived in liberty and dedicated to the proposition that all men are created equal. He honored those who gave their lives that that nation might live. He called on the living to be dedicated to the great task remaining before us. What was this great task? To give America under God a new birth of freedom, so that government of the people, by the people, for the people, shall not perish from the earth. Against such a vision of America, not even the skill of Robert E. Lee could prevail, especially not against the skill and determination of General Ulysses S. Grant. At virtually the same moment that the South lost the Battle of Gettysburg, General Grant completed the conquest of the Mississippi River by capturing the city of Vicksburg, Mississippi. Later in 1863, Grant smashed the Confederate Army in Tennessee driving the Confederates back to Georgia. Lincoln now put Grant in charge of all of the Union armies. By the spring of 1864, the Union at last had a general worthy of the brave men he led. Grant outnumbered Lee by two to one. Therefore, even though Grant could never overcome Lee's genius in battle, he gradually ground Lee and the South into the dust. Grant's soulmate in this war of attrition was General Sherman, who advanced relentlessly toward Atlanta. The South's last hope was that Lincoln might not be reelected in the presidential election scheduled for the fall of 1864. The Democrats dusted off General McClellan to run against his old nemesis, Abraham Lincoln. There was little doubt that if the Democrats and McClellan won the election, they would make peace with the South establishing the Confederacy as an independent nation. 
At one point in 1864, it looked as if Lincoln would indeed lose the election. The North was appalled at the human sacrifice of Grant's constant battles against Lee. The most horrible bloodletting came at the Battle of Cold Harbor, where 7,000 Union troops died in about an hour, making a fruitless, misguided attempt to charge well-entrenched Confederates. Despite this bungled battle that was reminiscent of Burnside's foolish assault at Fredericksburg, Grant fought on. By August, he had pinned Lee into trenches south of Richmond. Meanwhile, Sherman was held up besieging Atlanta. To a war-weary North that was sickened by the endless slaughter, it appeared that the South could never be beaten. But then, in early September, came the break that Lincoln needed. Sherman captured Atlanta. It was now clear to everyone that the South could not survive much longer. The North rallied behind Lincoln, and he won the election by a large margin. That winter, Sherman made his infamous March to the Sea, the campaign that is immortalized in Gone with the Wind. To break the backbone of the South and to cripple its ability to continue the war, Sherman spread destruction from Atlanta to Savannah, destroying buildings, animals, homes, and crops. When Lincoln gave his second inaugural address, the victory of the Union was expected within a few months. Thus he said, Fondly do we hope, fervently do we pray, that this mighty scourge of war may speedily pass away. Lincoln struggled to find a rationale for the horrible plague of bloodshed that had struck America during four years of brother fighting brother. He blamed both the North and the South for the debacle. Because slavery was somehow the cause of the war, and both the North and the South had tolerated slavery and benefited from it for many years, in fact, for nearly 250 years. Therefore, God, who is just, gave to both North and South this terrible war as the woe due to those who had enslaved others. As terrible as God's judgment had been thus far, who could know whether even more horrors might lie ahead? Because, said Lincoln, if God wills that this mighty scourge of war continue, until all the wealth piled by the bondsman's 250 years of unrequited toil shall be sunk, until every drop of blood drawn with the lash shall be paid by another drawn with the sword. As was said 3,000 years ago, so still it must be said, the judgments of the Lord are true and righteous altogether. After this horrifying confession of America's sin and guilt, Lincoln ended on a more hopeful note. His gaze shifted from God punishing America for its sins toward God blessing America in the future. Abraham Lincoln gave us a vision of America that could bring peace between North and South and peace for all humanity. His vision of peace did not rely on revenge and retribution. Instead, he urged Americans to achieve a just and lasting peace with malice toward none, with charity for all, and with firmness in the right, as God gives us to see the right. In the spirit of forgiveness, love, and righteousness, said Lincoln, America should strive on to finish the work we are in, to bind up the nation's wounds, to care for him who shall have borne the battle, and for his widow and his orphan, to do all which may achieve and cherish 
a just and lasting peace among ourselves and with all nations. When we hear such wisdom, we know that Mrs. Lincoln was right when she said that her husband's heart was as large as his arms were long, because to confess sins, to forgive others, and to work towards a glorious future of peace for all humanity, you must have the heart of Jesus Christ, the largest heart of all. Tragically, Abraham Lincoln did not live long enough to achieve and cherish a just and lasting peace among ourselves and with all nations. He lived long enough to see Robert E. Lee surrender on Palm Sunday. But like Jesus Christ, Abraham Lincoln was killed a few days later on Good Friday at the hands of scheming evildoers. Also like Jesus Christ, Lincoln achieved by his death what he could not have achieved any other way. As a martyr for America, Lincoln's words and wisdom achieved a sanctity that has guided America ever since. Lincoln had the wisdom to see America's sins, to hear America's sins, and to understand America's sins. Lincoln had the wisdom to know that, as the prophet Isaiah had explained 2,500 years earlier, if we see our sins, hear our sins, and understand our sins, God will enable us to turn from our sins, and God will heal our land. Furthermore, Lincoln had the wisdom to perceive that, after we confess our sins, God enables us to see and to do what is right. We can see that Harriet Beecher Stowe was right when she warned in Uncle Tom's cabin that both North and South have been guilty before God, and that the Union could not be saved by combining together to protect injustice and cruelty. We can see that Harriet Beecher Stowe was right when she prophesied that the Union could only be saved by repentance, justice, and mercy. These were the key themes of Lincoln's second inaugural address, urging Americans to repent of the sin of slavery, to be just to the freed slaves, and to be merciful to their enemies. Furthermore, as Lincoln well understood, to atone for America's sins, she must achieve a just and lasting peace among ourselves and with all nations. America must come in peace for all humanity. And the only way to come in peace for all humanity is with malice toward none, with charity for all, and with firmness in the right as God gives us to see the right. I hope you enjoyed this podcast today. If you did, please share it with a friend and find me on Facebook, Instagram, Twitter, as well as my website, timharner.com. Until we are together again, may the Lord bless us and keep us. May the Lord make his face to shine upon us and be gracious unto us. May the Lord turn his face toward us and give us peace.